0: reading from 1 John chapter 2 verse 28 to 1 John chapter 3 verse 10. And now dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, the sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning."
1: Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name's Phil. I'm one of the ministers on staff here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards if you're here for the first time. It's still lovely to meet you if you've been here for a while, but uh, particularly lovely if you're, uh, if you're new here. Let's pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. Father God, please, would you give us uh, humility to listen to your word? Would you help us to recognize truth And Father, please would you help us to respond rightly to it by your spirit. And we ask all this for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, those who have the great uh, privilege and joy of helping with the kids' work here on Sunday morning will know that uh, you don't have to see the parents collect the kids to know which parents are coming for some of the kids. There is a sort of there's a family resemblance thing. I'm not going to get myself in trouble by putting up pictures, but there are certain kids in the in the ch- oh, I know that nose. <laughs> I know that nose. You've got to be whoosh, parents, uh, child, uh, or oh, I'm sure I've seen that tantrum before. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, And this passage is really about family resemblances, but it's about family resemblances of a very different sort. The likeness that we should be able to see, uh, not physically, but morally, between those who claim to be children of God and God. It's all about family resemblance. John is, uh, as we've seen, writing to a church that's been rocked by a whole bunch of people leaving. They've said, look, we've got the secret to a new and deeper spirituality. Forget the fact that Christianity gives you this uh, public, verifiable revelation of of Jesus Christ. You need our secret to, to really have spiritual life. They've gone, the church is worried, or maybe there is something in it. And so one of the questions that John resolves in his letter is, what is a genuine Christian? And it comes up again and again. And in this passage, he gives us uh, three key truths as we work out what does a genuine Christian look like. Uh, You've got them down on the outline. Uh, We are born of him, we will become like him, and so we should behave like him. Those are his three key truths. We are born of him, we will become like him, so we should behave like him. Now the sharp end, the uncomfortable end of this, comes when we... uh, When we allow the light of God's word to to shine, not at some group of heretics who've left the church, but at you and me, at my heart, my behavior, and say, how many of us here tonight who call ourselves Christians feel confident that I could be easily identified by other people as a Christian by the way that I love, by the things I hope in, by the things I am or am not afraid of, by the way I treat people, by the things I laugh at and approve of and live for. It'll be an uncomfortable thing in one sense as we look at God's answer to these questions. But as always, we find that God doesn't just uh, shine his spotlight on us exposing problems. He also offers us his gracious solutions. So let's look together at this passage. Firstly, children of God will be sinless one day. So as often in 1 John, uh, it's quite a cyclical book. The the themes come um, again and again and again. And in particular, as he begins a new section, he often just reprises what he said in the previous section. So verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. The reminder to remain, don't move on into new things, move deeper into true things. Don't move on into new things, move deeper into true things. John's great call. But he does more than just repeat. Uh, If you'll notice, if you were listening last week, there is something new here. And that is a focus on the future, a focus on the return of Jesus, which he says changes and shapes everything now. You see it in verse 28, when he, that is Jesus, appears. Jesus is coming back. And for the writers of the New Testament, no less for John here, that is the great future truth that shapes all of reality between now and that date. All of life needs to be lived in the light of the return of the Lord Jesus. Now, a number of you uh, tonight are uh, just starting out your time at university. It's a wonderful privilege to go to university. And you, you have three or four years of endless possibilities in front of you. Uh, there are so many fun things to do at university. You can try every sport known to man, uh, and some which probably shouldn't, like Quidditch. I mean, seriously, who plays that? Um, but uh, there we go. Um, you can join any society you like. You can start any society you like. Friends of mine... Uh, they managed to get university union funding, because they had more than 15 members, to start siesta sock. They were paid to take a nap every day. That is genius. I'm serious. They were paid. To, I mean, you can do what you like at university. The, the, the world is your oyster. However, at the end of your three or four years, there will be a set of exams. I hope that's not news to you. And at the end of those exams, people will be awarded degrees. If you do not now get in your head that that is the whole point of university, then it doesn't matter how many societies you found, how much sport you play, you will make a dreadful mistake. And the whole thing, to be honest, well, you've got to question whether it's worth it at all. If you miss the fundamental points, that future date when the final exams take place and when degrees are awarded, that's got to shape everything, to be honest, from now. Yeah, you can probably take the first term a bit easy. Um, the staff at certain colleges won't thank me for saying, but you've got to start working. There is a future date coming which changes how you should spend your today. Now, we don't all get the opportunity to go to university, but we will all meet the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. And we should all live our lives today in the light of that future day. Okay, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So he now launches into what will be one of the dominant themes of the letter um, that Christians are born of God. He's already described them again and again as children of God, uh, or sorry, as dear children. But now he he makes it clear that they are uh, not his children. They are the children of God. They have been born of Him. Now, the first thing that is stressed is that children are like their parents. If you know that He is righteous, you know everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. If it waddles and it's covered in feathers and it goes whack, 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 it's a duck. You know, it's not rocket science, it's biology. Um, But it's a, you know, you know what it is. And He says, look, If God is holy, well, then you should be able to spot his children because they're kind of like God. They're righteous. They're good. They're fair. They're true. They're concerned about the things that God is concerned about. Now, the next few verses are critically important as he uh, launches into this whole theme of who is and who is not a child of God. Uh, And the first thing that he does is stop us making just about the most fundamental mistake that we make when we think about being children of God. Look with me at verses one to three. See what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Now the mistake I think we all make automatically is we assume if there is a God, his love has to be earned. We assume that verse 3, everyone who has this hope purifies himself, is the first step. And that that comes before verse 1. That we should be called children of God. But it doesn't. It is not that we seek to be pure and holy. And if we attain a high enough level. Then God is kind enough to say okay. You've merited a place in my family. He doesn't do it because of our goodness. But because of his love. It's very clear. With God it is not because you. It is because I. Because I and we, we really struggle to get this into our heads because it is just so different from everything else we're used to in life. Think about it. I'll ask you out because you are attractive. I'll award you a degree because you are clever and you are studious. I'll pay you because you've earned it. I'll invest in friendship with you because you're good company. And God says, "I'll make you my children." Because I love you. There's nothing we do to earn it. It is just because God is a God of love. Bob Dylan has just been awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, which has caused somewhat of a stink. Is he a writer? Who cares? He's written some iconic lines. I won't try and sing for the benefit of all those of us in the building. But uh, we all know the line, how many roads must a man walk down before they call him a man? The answer, my friends, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. But at the end of John's Gospel, our lines far more beautiful and far more revolutionary than anything even Bob Dylan penned. So it's the, uh, John's gospel is really the, um, it's the gospel of the Son. Of all the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, John's is the one which is the gospel of the Son, where you get this real emphasis on Jesus as one who relates to, who loves, who delights in, who obeys, who rejoices to know God as Father. It is full of of just this picture of a relationship between the son and the father. In John's gospel, we find that uh, the God who created the universe, the God of fire and thunder at Sinai, is the God who, who says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. He's a God of fatherly delight in John's gospel. And right at the end of John's Gospel, on that very first Easter Sunday morning, just after Jesus has risen from the dead, in the the gloomy, grey, early morning light of the garden, Mary Magdalene has just met Jesus Christ, risen to life. She came to anoint a dead body. Instead, she meets and worships a risen Saviour. And Jesus says this to her as he leaves. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and now your God. Jesus' death and resurrection means that you and I get to share in his relationship with God the Father by grace. He achieved it. He gives it to us as a gift. By the Holy Spirit, we're born again and given spiritual life. And that life is the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're brought into his family. I've, I've probably said before about the uh, good friends just down the road in Chelsea, the Dawsons. They're a fabulous family. Um, five kids. And they're the sort of, I mean, they, it makes you a little bit sick in some ways. If um, Those of us who um, who who's kind of, well, should we say the motif of relating to brothers and sisters was uh, as iron sharpens iron, might be the, the best way to describe it. Uh, the Dawson kids are just really nice. They, they enjoyed sharing rooms as, when they were little because they just got on well. They, you know, they, they, they voluntarily did chores for their parents. They're just, and they're not weird, they're just really lovely, depressingly so. And you kept going around sort of hoping that, you know, they have, they're a normal family, they have their ups and downs, but, but they're just delightful. And uh, when, the, when the, the youngest kid reached about 10, they decided to, um, to adopt. And they adopted two kids from just horrific, abusive, neglectful, nightmare, utter nightmare backgrounds. And those kids were brought in. It, it wasn't just that they, uh, they were suddenly given a stable relationship and they were given uh, food and shelter. No, they were brought into a family they were brought into not just a direct relationship with, uh, with somebody else, but into a network of relationships. They were adopted into a, a family that loved and delighted and enjoyed one another. And that is what you and I have when we put our trust in Jesus. We get to share in his family relationship, in all the joy, the delight, and the happiness and the holiness of God the Trinity. Children of God. If you trust in Jesus Christ, that is what you are. And that is a wonderful place to ground your identity. But, as it says in uh, verses 1b to 2, the world can't see what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. It is not immediately obvious, looking out tonight, that I am looking at the sons and daughters of the Most High God, at divine royalty. It'll be a whole lot less obvious, dare I say, early on Monday morning when we look in the mirror. It just, it's, it's not obvious that we are God's children. But then it, it wasn't obvious that Jesus was who he says he was. He looked so ordinary, so very humble, that people underestimated him. And verse 2, just as it can't be seen obviously on the surface what we are now... So we cannot see what one day we will be. And what we will one day be is like Christ. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And then he carries on, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. We were looking this morning at Philippians 3.19, which also talks about the, the transformation at the end of time. But the emphasis in Philippians is physical. Our bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. Here, the emphasis is not so much physical as moral. You see that because of uh, verse three, which says, Those who have this hope purify themselves and stresses that he is pure. He's talking about the transformation from sinful and selfish to holy and pure, which is a wonderful thing to look forward to. It is one of the great hopes of the Christian faith an end to sin. No longer bogging up relationships with the people I love because I'm just too proud to back down and say I'm wrong. Or because I'm so desperately needy that I'm always needing to get affirmation and love from them and I'm never free to enjoy them and love them myself. Or uh, being torn internally by desires. I know that they're just not right and yet I want more than anything to give in to them. How wonderful to be free of those things. And one day, we will be free. What a great hope. But there are lots of passages that talk about that. The interesting thing here, I think, is, the, is that this passage teaches us about the mechanics of it. Do you see that? Verse 2? We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What an odd phrase. We'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. What on earth does it mean? Actually, believe it or not, it is one of the central themes of the Bible. Here it is. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. That is, the things, the people, the principles that we value most highly, that we love most, that we live for, those things shape us inevitably. Now, you see it on the trivial level with teenagers. Uh, they want to be like that kid. And suddenly, wow, the clothes, the, the voice changes, everything changes. And they become just like that in their rebellious way of all becoming exactly the same. It's, you, you see it with young teenagers. We've all done it. Don't laugh. You did it. I did it. We all know. Um, and these days, it's all on your Facebook pages. I was too young for that. Uh, but you see it much more seriously in what the Bible calls idols or... Um, the false gods that we put our hope in. So you see it with the way people treat their careers. When, when if your career is the driving ambition of your life, the thing that you value most highly is getting ahead in career, in building a career that you can be proud of. It will shape you. You will become like it. What do I mean by that? I think what I mean is you become hard, depersonalized. Your uh, your whole conversation just becomes surrounded, uh, focused on your job. That becomes the only thing that really drives you. In fact, it starts to shape your sense of right and wrong as well. So what is right are the things that benefit my career. And nothing that benefits my career is really wrong. You become shaped by it. You see it with the desire for romantic relationships. When that good desire becomes uh, the overwhelming thing, the the highest principle, the highest value of my life, that I must be in a romantic relationship. We become like it. We become actually less of a person. Because we become uh, only complete when I'm the other half of somebody. We become less than a full person ourselves. We just become a relater. No longer a person. We get shaped by the things we value most highly. But it's also true of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is my highest principle, if he is the one I love and value above all else, then wonderfully, inevitably, slowly, supernaturally, God transforms us to be like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 explains this uh, in slightly more um, uh, detail, really. It says it's not just a future thing we look forward to, that we'll become like him, for we'll see him as he is. Even today, we're told, um, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate, gaze on the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image. It's not a weird, mystical thing. It's not even a visual thing because we can't see God. We can't see Jesus. We see him now as we behold him in the glory of his word. So uh, look at the very beginning of uh, 1 John, the letter we've been studying. Turn back to the the very first verses. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at with our hands, have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. In other words, he's an eyewitness. And now we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. We know Jesus, we meet Jesus, we relate to Jesus, we see Jesus as we meet him in the word. So it's not that as a Christian, I learned some stuff about Jesus in the Bible and I have this, kind of, this weird mystical relationship without here. It's not like that. It's like this. I relate to Jesus as he speaks to me through the word. As I learn truths about him from the the reliable eyewitnesses who wrote about him in the word. As his spirit speaks these words, I'm relating to Jesus. It's not, here's the Bible and here's Jesus. It's I relate to Jesus through his word. Now, that means that as we invest time studying the word of God we are becoming more and more like Jesus. As we worship him, as we seek to build our lives around him, we become more like him. If we're honest, all those of us who call ourselves Christians need to admit we've got a long, long, long way to go. And when Jesus returns, he will finish that work. But it is happening. And if we have, verse three of our passage tonight, that hope for the future, we purify ourselves now. We seek to grow in our relationship with Jesus now. You want to be pure now? Well, spend time with Jesus in his word. Time with Jesus in the Bible is not just informative. It is transformative. As we gaze on him, as we contemplate him, as we learn about him and worship him, we are changed into his image. As we see him, we become like him. It is not just informative. It's transformative when we meet Jesus in his word. Okay, so children of God will be sinless one day. That is the longest point. Secondly, much, much more briefly, they always say that, don't they? Uh, God and sin are opposites. Now the short little central bridge section, the focus shifts from us really to sin. Verses four to six. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. The central point comes in verse 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. The whole point of Jesus coming to earth was to, was to take away our sins, to get rid of them. It becomes even stronger in verse 8. Uh, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. God the Son did not become a human because he was bored. You know, just fed up creating universes. He didn't become a human for a bet that he lost with God the Father. He did it to destroy the works of evil. His entire life on earth was a mission to destroy evil. God's entire existence is driven towards the destruction and defeat and annihilation of all that is wicked. And because of that, John writes in verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Uh, the, uh, we, were, we had a pub quiz here on Friday night um, in aid of Tamar, which is um, uh, a ministry uh, that we help support that helps to, to rescue mainly women who've been uh, trafficked for the sex industry, which sadly is a problem right around the corner here in London in Mayfair. And it's part of a, an organization called the International Justice Mission which was set up by a guy called uh, Gary Hugen, who's an American lawyer. He Top of his class at Harvard, uh, top of his class at Chicago Law School. And he had any job he wanted. Retire at 50 from a Wall Street law firm with more money than he'd know how to spend. But he, was, uh, he started work at the Justice Department, and he was sent by them in 1996, just uh, shortly after he graduated, to Rwanda. To, to help them work out how to set up um, the tribunals in the wake of the genocide just after it had happened, and he saw things there that just transformed him. He saw in a raw, visceral way the reality of evil. And he came back and he left his job, and he founded the International Justice mission, to seek to combat systemic wickedness and injustice around the world in particular as it destroys the lives of the poor, and to combat the 25 million person strong current slave trade. He wrote some uh, pretty powerful things. He said there aren't actually two sides to every story. Sometimes there is just evil, plain, unvarnished, intentional evil. And when you see it, you have to fight it. When our grandchildren ask us where we were when the voiceless and the vulnerable in our era needed leaders of compassion and purpose, I hope we can say we showed up and we showed up on time. He saw the reality of evil and injustice in this world and he said, you know what? I'm giving my life to getting rid of this. And that is just a tiny, tiny, tiny reflection of what God did. And God the Son didn't just, he didn't give up a a lucrative career. He gave up the rights of the Son of God. He didn't uh, risk uh, health and income. He gave his life to destroy the works of wickedness. And as verse 6 says, if we know that, if we know that, if we know God is a God like that, then it changes how we think about sin and wickedness, when we know that's God's mission, that's God's driving force, it makes us want to hate it too. Lastly, children of God will fight sin today. So as we've seen, there's this bunch of people that left John's church. They're trying to get those who remain to come with them. They're trying to undermine them. And they're teaching things that aren't true about Jesus, as we saw last week. And we learned this week that always when you start uh, teaching untrue things about Jesus, you end up teaching bad things about how you should behave. Strange beliefs about Jesus always lead to sinful lifestyle. Always, always, always. Verses 7 to 10. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who's born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or their sister. Not every politician who appears in public waving a Bible with senior church leaders arrayed behind them is a child of God. Jesus did not say, by their photo ops you shall know them, (laughs) but by their fruit you shall know them. Do not be naive. Do not be naive. Not everyone who seeks to teach Christians, who writes Christian books, or stands up in a pulpit like this, is faithful. Don't be naive. Check that what I'm saying comes from the Bible. Some people out there teach false things that are spiritually damaging. Don't be fooled by the size of their church or the popularity of their books. Verse 7 gives us a much surer test. Do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. In other words, the question you ask is, what is their life like? Not what are their public appearances like, but what is their life like? Is it righteous as he, that is, Jesus is righteous? Are they seeking to live like Jesus in every way? Not just in the ways that are popular in our culture, that our culture will applaud you for, but also in the ways that cut against the grain in our culture, but which are true to Jesus and his word. It gets pretty blunt, as we've seen already in verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. He's just saying, ultimately, ultimately, you play for one of two teams. That's all. But he's also making a very, very important point. And as obvious as it is, I think it's one that you and I fail to to see again and again sin is of the devil, sin is of the devil. See, when I'm tempted, I don't see it. I think sin looks fun. It doesn't look very harmful. It looks like something I'm in control of. But sin is wicked. It is ugly. It is corrosive. It is deadly. And if we don't get this, if we have a weak view of sin, if we don't see it as wicked, the logic of verse 3 will play out totally differently. Verse 3, all who have this hope of being made like Jesus, purify themselves just as he is pure. But for lots of us, or I should say for all of us at different points, we run the logic differently. Because we don't see sin as really horrible. And so instead it's because they have this hope, it doesn't really matter how I live. You know, Jesus saves me, whatever I do, and he's going to transform me at the end of time. So it's not that much of a big deal how I live right now. Or because they have this hope, get your fun in now before the party's over. Because when I read in the Bible, a whole load of the things I like to do don't seem to make God's hit list for heaven. So I better, you know, Live a good life now and then, you know, have the boring stuff later. When we have that attitude, the attitude that sort of says with sin, well, how far can I go? How far is too far? We show a complete misunderstanding of the nature of sin. Sin is of the devil. Sin comes from the one who delights in rape and murder and cancer and death. And no matter how sweetly it is packaged, sin is enslaving and sin's only desire is always your death. Holiness is not just a requirement for you if you're a Christian. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. It is freedom from the devil's works. Now if you've been listening carefully over the past few weeks, as I'm sure you have, then at this point you may be thinking, hang on, it seems to me that the end of chapter, this section of chapter 3 it kind of contradicts what John's already says. So it seems to say that uh, verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue in sin because God's seed remains in them. That's the Holy Spirit. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. That's pretty blunt, pretty black and white. Come back, 1 John 1, 8 to 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Oh, how do you reconcile those two? I think the reason uh, there's probably not time to get into it. The reason relates to the nature of the false teaching they're dealing with. The false teachers are claiming um, uh, that we're not sinful, and yet they're behaving appallingly. So he's he's addressing different things. We can get into. You can come and ask me later if you've got questions about that. But the big point is, he's not saying uh, Christians never sin. He's saying sinful life is incompatible with Christianity. Uh, in, the, in my first year at um, secondary school, uh, there were a number of, um, of kids in, in the year, the, the sort of the big gang of the year, uh, really liked shopping but weren't so keen on paying for things, um, which doesn't go down very well with shopkeepers. And in the little town where we were living, it was a fairly small town where the school was, so it was pretty obvious uh, what was going on. And so the headmaster called in the entire year group. And we were banned from going into the town for, for the rest of the year. But he said, uh, that is not how pupils at this school behave. Now, at which point, had I been pedantic, I would have put up my hand and said, well, clearly that's wrong because it's exactly how we're behaving. Um, as stupid as I was as a, as a young teenager, I did not do that. Because the point is, he's not saying uh, physically, that's not how pupils at this school behave. He's saying, that is not the standards that are expected of you you are part of a of a community which has standards and that is not how you behave we get that and john is not saying it is physically impossible for a christian to sin you know we all know it's perfectly possible we prove it every day all of us he's saying it's logically impossible for a for a christian to carry on happily in sin we're children of the god who hates sin of a god whose life's work was to destroy the works of the evil one and in that sense, true children of God can never carry on in sin. I'll tell you about uh, Gary uh, Hugin, the, the, um, the founder of International Justice Mission. Imagine if you wanted a job with him. He's over in London. Uh, he knows Mike and Dawn. And so uh, gets you, they get you an interview with him. And you'd love to have a job with him. And so um, you take him out for dinner and, uh, you know, having a discussion and thinking, what should I do with him after dinner? I really want to to get this job working for International Justice Mission. I know, um, I know, we're in Mayfair. I'll take him to a brothel and I'll offer to pay for him because that would be great. It's really generous. I'm sure he'd love it. Are you mad? Do you think he's going to give you a... There's no... How could you even think of doing something like that? He hates the whole concept of people being trafficked to be used and abused in that way. If you behave like that, you show you do not know him at all. And there is no way he's going to want you as part of his organisation. And yet, when I sin, not just against an employer, When I sin, I treat God my Father like that. I do the equivalent of taking the head of IJM into a brothel every time I use my body for sin. It's appalling. It's wicked. To indulge in sin as one of God's children, when I do it, it shows I just don't know my Father at all. God hates sin. And we are born of him if we trust in Jesus. And we will become like him if we trust in Jesus. And so we should behave like him if we trust in Jesus. Now I don't know where for each one of you here tonight the battle is raging. To live like a child of God rather than a child of the world. But I do know that if we want our friends and family to see that there is something real on offer in the gospel. And not just words but a real power. If we want the world to see the truth about God, then it's a battle you and I need to fight and fight hard every day. Now it's overwhelming when you, when you hear it put like that. And it can be crushing. Uh, but being crushed is, is not John's purpose and it's not mine tonight. And so a much more sensible thing to do would perhaps be to pray at the end of uh, this evening, to pray that God God would show you by his Holy Spirit the one area where you most need to fight harder. The one area where, where you most need to be shaped by Christ and not by the idols, the false values that you're allowing to shape you. Because we've been made children of God. One day we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in them, purify themselves as he is pure we're going to share the lord's supper together now and in the lord's supper we celebrate the forgiveness that makes us children of god we also we also strengthen our faith as we feed on the lord jesus christ and celebrate his new status our new status in him and find strength for the battles with sin The Lord's Supper is given that all who participate may remember Christ's death on the cross once for all to pay for sins and his glorious resurrection to reign at God's right hand as Lord and judge. It's given that we who are in need of God's sustenance and fatherly care might feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. It's given as a memorial by Jesus himself and practiced by his apostles and earliest followers. In the same night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and gave you thanks. He broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and gave you thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Therefore, Heavenly Father, we remember his offering of himself made once for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. We look for the coming of your kingdom. And with this bread and this cup, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. Let's pray together, confessing our sins, the sins that require the forgiveness of our Father. You've got the words printed inside your sheets. Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life in your Son, Jesus Christ, who has freed us from our sins by his blood. Yet we still fail to love you with all our heart or serve you as we ought. Pardon our offenses, we pray, and make us clean, that we may enjoy the blessings of being in Christ in whom alone is salvation. Amen.